welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 49th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing today? Good, good. So uh, it feels like, you know, we've already had three years go by since the start of 2020, but oh my gosh. we're only uh, only just starting June here. So I mean, you got chapter after chapter. You had the flare up with Iran and very early. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Back in January, oil prices spiked on a temporary basis. Next thing you know, COVID hits, right? Next thing you know, we have civil unrest. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, man, we are turning some pages in In this book. I know. I know. It's kind of crazy. So um, anyways, we have another packed episode for for everyone today. And we'll just uh, take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the year of the major indexes that we track since we are just into the beginning of June here. So uh, this data is from Coifin and the data is from... The market close on June 1st. So the S&P 500 index is down 5.32% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 10.62% for the year. The NASDAQ up 5.76%. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 15.36% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is down 13.04% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.14%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.16%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.67%. So last week, Matt, there were hopes uh, of a vaccine in states reopening that helped kind of buoy the Wall Street gains in the first half of the holiday shortened week. But then, you know, geopolitics came back and got in the way a little bit as the week ended and stocks kind of dropped a little bit on concerns, especially uh, on the move uh, for China trying to exert more authority, uh, authority and control over Hong Kong. And obviously that's going to increase tensions with the U.S. and other trading partners um, who are not for that. So Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. And then as of yesterday, it looks like China escalated things a little further and told state-owned firms to halt purchases of soybeans and pork from the United States after Washington said that it would eliminate special treatment for Hong Kong to punish Beijing. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, Moving on, despite following up on April's extreme bullishness with gains ranging from like four to seven percent for a host of U.S. stock indexes, the markets uh, remain anywhere from five to 15 percent below the highs hit in mid-February. So on a more positive note, the S&P 500 index is up 35 percent from around 35 percent from its March low. Huge run since March 23rd. Huge huge so um you know it's just one of those things where you don't know how bad things are going to get or how quickly they're going to come back and that's why you always gotta be there and stay what we call in quotes in the game to to reap the benefits of market bounce backs like this yeah and we kind of talked a lot about this i mean if you go back this stuff is time stamped 
you go back to our podcast that we had in, in late March, early April, you know, we were sharing with listeners the statistics of of what we thought the market was going to do. We were quoting a lot of that bespoke research. And again, it's statistics, but the market tends to repeat itself. History tends to repeat itself. And though we talked about it, there weren't one-off situations you could directly compare it to, but you can directly compare it to other instances where the market behaved that way, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so again, it just, you know, just telling listeners, listen to this podcast every week and you're going to gain more and more knowledge, in my opinion, (laughs) doing my compliance disclosure. Right, right. Um, And then finally, this week, we're getting some more backward looking reads from April on construction spending, car sales uh, and factory orders, as well as May reads on manufacturing and the service sector. But the main focus, I think, Matt, is going to be on the May jobs data. Oh, yeah. Including last month's unemployment figure, which is set to be released on Friday morning at 830. Yes, sir. We'll see how that comes out. Yes, sir. So moving on uh, to tweets, articles, and research that caught our eyes for the week, Matt, I'll let you kind of start here. Yeah, Mark, I got a couple for the listeners. First is going to be from Brian Lund. He produces a weekly uh, research note called The Lund Loop. Does a real good job. He um, issues those out on Saturday mornings. I'm an avid reader. And a couple things I'd like to share with you, Mark, and this will be the benefit of the listeners. He showed a chart that shows the past two weeks where money has been flowing, and he shows it, Mark, by what I would call subsector of the market. So, for example, U.S. Aluminum Index, U.S. Recreational Services Index, etc. Okay. Now, for listeners, this chart uh, later in the week will be posted to our show notes. We're a little delayed in that this week, but we'll get it there. But what this chart shows is it shows over the past two weeks, money's flowing into the most beat up stocks, Mark. And in his note, he calls this, quote, rotation in action. The question is, is this the start, Mark, of a broad recovery or are the stocks farthest from their 52 week highs just reverting to the mean? But if they are, that dynamic could continue to drive the markets higher in the short term. One thing's for sure, Mark, there were a lot of positive developments this week, and you talked about some of those. The S&P recapturing 3,000, the Dow recapturing 25,000 for the first time since early March, and more importantly, the S&P broke above its 200-day moving average. So even international stocks got into the action, with the Eurostox 50 gaining almost 7% and the Nikkei almost taxed 7% last week. So, Mark, I'm going to ask you a direct question for the benefit of our listeners. You and I have made several observations in this podcast that the rally off the March 23rd low through April and most of May was a relatively narrow in nature, benefiting tech stocks as an example. When you see this chart and you hear those comments I just mentioned from Brian's note, do you feel and or are you seeing this rally starting to get more broad in nature over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, so I think it's natural for, in my opinion, to see money rotate into some of the most beat up areas of the market short term. And I think you saw that last week and the week before with banks, for example. So banks got crushed and then we had a lot of inflows to banks last week. Uh, Same thing with airlines. Airlines are bouncing based on, um, you know, expectations of travel picking back up. And while this is common, 
you know, we have to wait and see if this is a long term theme or if this is going to be a short term bounce. And then, you know, they're going to continue to underperform the broader market. So what I like to see, though, in expansions, Matt, is a broad uh, breadth of a market rally. And what I mean by that is we see all industries participating in the upside, pushing the market higher, not just a couple few small areas. Right, exactly. And in my opinion, that tends to tell me that the underlying strength in the overall market is strong. Whereas if we only had a few industry groups or one like tech so far that's leading this rally, you know, that makes me question it a little more because tech is such a big part of the S&P 500, for example. You know, if the tech companies start to, to falter, you know, are we going to keep moving higher in, in this market that rally? Leadership and it would be tough. 25% approximately the, of the S&P index. But that's how rotation works, right? So you're going to have industries that outperform, but then there's going to be money that rotates into other industries that's going to pick up the slack when, for example, tech starts to underperform. Um, So I do like to see all industries participating in this. I would just question right now if this is just short term or if it's going to be here for the long haul. Absolutely. I think it's great verbiage and I would agree with everything you said. Um, I had a follow-up question. Don't know if you want to throw anything out there. What else would you like to see as signs of the market continuing to stabilize? You talked about, you know, having more of a broad rally of nature, including Mm -hmm. all the S&P 500 sectors. Anything else you kind of want to share with the listeners? Yeah, I'd like to see um, small caps, so smaller companies and transportation companies start to lead and outperform. So they've held up relatively well and they're starting to show signs of strength. But, um, you know, if listeners want to go and look up the Dow theory, typically when, you know, a major index like the Dow or the S&P 500 index breaks out, we typically like to see small cap companies and transports confirm that breakout to say, hey, we're we're in good times right now for the next couple of years. Love that. So I'd like to like to see that probably uh, occur here within the next couple of weeks. That would be uh, a major bullish signal for me. I think that's great. So I appreciate you sharing that with the listeners. Um, I got two more, Mark, if I may. Um, the next one is a tweet from CNBC, and uh, it was in regards to the personal savings rate. And this was a tweet from May 29th, sir. Personal savings rate spikes to record high for April. And this chart goes back to 1960. And it shows in April, the American savings rate on average was over 33%. I guess that's one of the positives that's come out of this, right? People have been spending as much the last couple of months, Mm -hmm. right? And I guess we'll see if Americans will revert back to the mean and, you know, continue their, uh, you know, decreased savings rates. Most likely. But, you know, I think this is a good eye opener for people or especially younger people that haven't gone through this. Maybe hopefully even if it helps a little bit to save an an extra five, six, seven percent per month of your pay to to put it towards that emergency fund or, you know, to have funds when something like this occurs again in the future. I think you could also see, Mark, people's personal balance sheets uh, delever. Meaning for listeners, I think you're going to see people pay down debt. And it was a similar effect after uh, 07, 08, and 09. When you looked on average at people's personal balance sheets and you look at just overall debt levels, they did come down a couple of years after that crisis as it was fresh in people's mind. Hey, if we go through that again, I want to make sure we don't have as much debt. Those were the conversations in American households. And I think that you're going to see a little bit of that again. 
But I will say, as long as the jobs come back, I think you're going to see consumer spending, relatively speaking, go back to, it's going to take time, Mm -hmm. but it will revert back in my opinion. Yeah. We'll see if I'm right. Yeah. Um, And the other thing I want to throw out there for listeners in this tweet is the prior high going back to 1960, it was in the mid 70s where it reached, it looks about 17, 18% one month. Hmm. So we spiked to 33 in April. Wow. With the economy shut down, doesn't surprise me. But right. still, it is it is a pretty amazing statistic. I got one more for you. And this is <clears throat> a little deeper. It's from Bespoke, but I just need you to follow me on this. So they had a chart mark of the net percentage of overbought S&P 500 stocks exceeding 70% going back to 1990. Okay? So it's rare, though, for it to go to extremely overbought from being extremely oversold in just 50 trading days, okay? So this chart for Bespoke goes back to 1990, and it highlights four instances prior to this where the market was oversold and then overbought in just 50 trading days. Yeah, and just to clarify for for listeners, I... Uh, Bespoke uses uh, standard deviations um, to measure overbought and oversold. So they have one, two, three standard deviations above and one, two, three standard deviations below. So Yes, <clears throat> thank you. So the previous times were 2009, 2011, 2016, and early in 2019. The returns six months in one year after those events produced some good returns with the lowest one-year return after this occurring being 12.32% and the best close to 30%. Lastly, if you average out mark the 10 times it happened since 1990, in some of those periods, it took longer than 50 trading days. Mm -hmm. But the closest in proximity from being oversold to overbought, take the 10 times, the one-year average return afterwards for the S&P 500 indexer, 18.79%. So this kind of reminds me of me talking about some of those statistics we were throwing around in March, Mm -hmm. right? So now we're looking at some statistics where the market has bounced back relatively quickly. We're looking at some other instances in history going back to 1990 where it did it similar. Mm -hmm. And even though we only have four data points, all four data points are showing a relatively friendly investment environment if history repeats itself six months out one year out and again i don't think you take this as one data point and you just do it Mm -hmm. but i think it's definitely one solid data point that you can look at right yeah so it's 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 definitely encouraging i think just people like you said have to be aware because the sample size is small four it's only four times yeah so it's not a common occurrence Mm -hmm. right yeah so um we'll try to get those charts up later in the week and uh, Mr. McEvely, I'm going to send it back to you. Okay. Um, so kind of an abbreviated financial planning topic of the week this week, but I just wanted to take some time and remind listeners that the tax filing deadline for uh, 2019 is July 15th. And that's coming up you know, sooner than people expected, I think. So this is the last day to file your taxes and also make contributions to your retirement accounts for 2019. And if you remember, the contribution limit for IRAs in 2019 is $6,000 if you're below the age of 50 and $7,000 if you're the uh, above the age of 50. So if you have not 
done so already, start to think about those two things if you've forgotten about them. Because July 15th seemed so far away when the deadline was pushed back in March, but it's going to creep up on us pretty quickly here, and I just don't want people to to forget that. Exactly. So um, just wanted to throw that out there for listeners as well. Uh, we do have a question from Dennis this week, Matt. Okay. So um, Dennis says, could you discuss ETFs, what they are, and some of the pros and cons of ETFs? So I'll start here, Matt. Um, so Dennis, exchange or ETFs are exchange, ex, excuse me, exchange traded funds. And ETFs are baskets of securities that trade on exchanges just how stocks do. And you can buy them and you can sell them at any point in time. So, for example, there's ETFs that track the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the Dow, international indexes, so on and so forth. And you cannot physically buy the indexes, but you can buy an ETF that is designed to track the index, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the pros of ETFs, I think, are... They're low cost and you can buy and sell them relatively easily throughout the trading day, just like a stock. Um, So liquidity is very good. So, you know, people, retail traders should not have a problem, you know, with buying or selling one of the large liquid ETFs. Um, So it's just it's designed to provide exposure to broad indices. Um, for people who don't want to dig into the weeds and do the stock picking or the bond picking, or you know, they have ETFs that track commodity in- indexes as well. Um, so those are kind of the basics of what of what you know an exchange traded fund is. And I think the biggest pro to that, like I mentioned, is the liquidity. And you can trade it throughout the day, unlike a mutual fund where it only trades at the end of the day, right, Matt? Correct. So yeah, go ahead. And so you know, an ETF, you know, when the market opens at 9.30 until it closes at 4, you can buy and sell ETFs just like you do with a stock. With a mutual fund, it only tra- trades once a day at the end of the day. So the benefit there, typically ETFs are lower cost than mutual funds, and you can trade them throughout the day just like a stock. Yep. Um, do you want to discuss maybe just your opinion if you have any negative thoughts about ETFs? All right, so a couple things come to mind, Dennis, that I want to throw out there. First is there are a lot of what we would call levered or inverse ETFs that I would be very, very cautious about. So I'll start first with the word levered. There are ETFs out there that have um, exposure utilizing derivatives that give sometimes two times and three times either up or down performance in a specific subsector of the market. And when you say levered, you know, this money is borrowed and then put to work in options or whatever to increase the return of that product. The volatility, right? increase the exposure, right. right? The magnitude of the exposure. So <clears throat> I'd be very careful with those types of ETFs, especially holding them for extended periods of time with that leverage really erodes the returns. Mm-hmm. Be very careful with that. There's ETFs out there that are inverse, meaning that they make money when that specific index goes down. Very, Be very careful with using that. The last thing that comes to mind is um, there's a lot of ETFs out there, Mark, and some are very, very small in nature, and their bid-ask spreads are very wide, and you got to be very careful. And um, the last thing that comes to mind, I would say, is... 
in the realm of expenses on some of those funds could be very, mm-hmm. very high. Yeah. On the newer ones. Yeah. And you can look up on Google the expense ratio of all the publicly traded ETFs. So Absolutely. that shouldn't be an issue. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a bunch of companies out there. I won't name names that have, you know, very low, low cost funds. That sure. Are very affordable sure. for the most part. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely advantages and disadvantages. I would be selective. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another product out there. It's called an exchange traded note, Matt, and it's kind of like a structured product. Um, I'm sure many people are aware and I won't dig into the weeds of it, but again, it's using borrowed money to leverage, you know, leverage up or, uh, on a certain, on a certain investment or an under on an underlying of investment securities. And, you know, these products are, you know, issued by banks. And I just read an article earlier this morning in the Wall Street Journal that told some stories about how some of these structured products blew up Lehman. and, the, and the, the banks. Yeah, that happened to Lehman Brothers and banks called them back. And, you know, people got 20 cents on the dollar of what they paid for it. So people have I think people have a false sense of security because a lot of the structured products have downside protection. And I'm quoting downside protection, right, Matt, where it says they'll cover the first 20 percent downside or 10 percent downside. But, you know, when the banks can't, uh, you know, make money on these products anymore and they're losing significant amount of money, they can call them back and pay you like. 20 cents on the dollar for them. Yep. So I'll, I'll tell you a real life story. This goes back to um, back to 08. Okay. I was at a major wirehouse at that time. I was not independent and I dabbled a little bit in those structured notes. I'm talking like maybe one or two client accounts that I thought it was appropriate for um, very small amounts. Um, there was another advisor in the office. It was the I'm Dead serious when I say this, it was the Friday before Lehman Brothers announced their bankruptcy. And <clears throat> there was another broker in the office that sold, it was, it was a large trade, it was almost $100,000. And it was in a structured note backed by Lehman where the underlying security was Procter & Gamble. And there was some sort of, you get exposure to Procter for 12 or 18 months, downside protection, blah, 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 mm-hmm. right? Well, the problem was it was issued by Lehman. So, you know, at the time people were seeking safety. So, you know, Procter and Gamble being a, you know, a large consumer staple company in 08 kind of makes sense, right? You fast forward to that Monday. So that client put that money in and on Monday that became an asset of Lehman Brothers, right? And I don't know what the client ended up getting back, but I could speculate it was marginal cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. And that just goes to show you the the potential pitfalls of some of those structured notes being issued and technically an asset of that bank. Yeah. And I think the overall theme here is that there is no holy grail investment that you have no downside and you have all upside. And they're going to sell it to you like it's they that They will way. sell it to you like that. And that's what people think about these structured products is that, you know, they they're cap, they have a certain cap on their gains, but they could still make double digit returns. But the first 30 percent is is taken care of. And and that's just it's not how it works that way. Yeah, so I mean, if, at the end of the day, when the prospectus is over probably 50 pages and it's like tissue paper. And they're telling you, hey, there's no risk associated with this. That's when I start laughing. Yeah. And if someone can't 
explain to me in a couple sentences and not have me understand how an investment works, then I typically my red flags start to go up. Well, look how hard it is for you and me to articulate to listeners. <laughs> yeah, how these I know. Things work. I know. Exactly. I'm trying to think of yeah. all the caveats associated with it just for basic education. But it's yeah. like it's complicated. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, there's. There is no that I'm aware of. There is no investment product out there that a lot of people are seeking, you know, and they'll have ads on on Google or on on websites that say, you know, the next big investment product or whatever. And, you know, you can't you can't fall into that stuff. Yeah. I mean, we're a little bit of an anomaly still in our industry where we utilize a lot of individual securities rather than. But I like it because it's it's simple. It's easy to explain to people. That's right. And so we we come across people in our industry all the time, listeners, where they're like, how are you guys doing it? And, you know, we tell them and it's like we have two heads. It's like because a lot of people in our industry don't want to put the time and effort and work in to manage money the way we do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you start subbing stuff out to third parties, you're not really understanding what what you might own for clients, situations like this can occur. Right. No, it's, it's I, I like it just because it simplifies things. And That's it right. simplifies things for the clients. It's a lot of work, uh, but it, we feel that that work is well worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great question, Dennis. Keep, keep it coming, sir. Yeah. Um, well, that's all I had for this week, Matt. Anything else before, uh, we sign off here and, um, we got the fed meeting next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, not expecting much from the federal reserve in the form of the announcement on Wednesday. Besides that, I do not, sir. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening to the 49th episode of the independent advisors podcast. We hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and we will see you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.